grab your Bibles if you have them. We are going to be in Matthew 25 this morning. And last week we covered a very interesting chapter, and Jesus continues this theme of the end times into this week. But you might remember they go from being in the temple and Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders and and Jesus finally kind of having enough and putting them in their place, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, So then they go from there over uh, to the Mount of Olives and, uh, and the disciples are asking Jesus about the end times and he tells them that there'll be many false messiahs. There'll be many um, false Christs that will try to deceive people. There'll be wars and earthquakes and lawlessness and um, some terrible things that will happen before I return. He says it'll be like birth pains, labor pains for the earth. And that the Jews would have to really hang in there. And then we learned uh, that, uh, you know, about, uh, uh, about the seven years, and we kind of went through Daniel a little bit and Revelations and kind of have to weave it all together to try to understand it, knowing that we're not going to fully understand the end times. So let's review what kind of happened so we can get our minds back into what Christ is talking about as he leads into chapter uh, uh, 25. Uh, so the rapture of the church will happen and it can happen at any time. There's nothing that needs to be fulfilled right now before the rapture of the church could happen. No prophecy at this point. And you would say, well, pastor, I thought the, the temple had to be rebuilt before he returns. Well, we're talking about two different returnings. We're talking about him returning to rapture us versus him returning and actually putting foot down on this earth. That happens at the end of the seven years, as we talked about last week. So it is the rapture that he comes like a thief in the night, not the second coming. We will all know when the second coming happens because everyone will be at Armageddon gathered up for the war. So you will understand, I mean, if you were here, and hopefully you will be already gone in the rapture. So Jesus raptures the church, and we go in the air to, to meet with him, and the Holy Spirit that's been dwelling in us goes with us. So all of a sudden the earth is left without all this salt, without all this light, without all this goodness. So the earth just kind of crumbles and and uh, you have this void of of goodness on the earth so the devil brings forth the antichrist and he comes to power and wins the world over through um, deception and he brings peace to the middle east through deception and everyone is really happy israel will look to to him almost as a as a messiah or a savior because he allows them to rebuild the temple and everything's great for the first three and a half years then the Antichrist will walk into the temple and, uh, and, and go through the temple and go into the Holy of Holies and tells Gentiles that, uh, you know, we're actually where Gentiles aren't supposed to be, and he will tell the whole world, he'll set a statue up of himself and claim to be the Savior and that they need to worship him as God. So that begins the second three and a half years that, that begins a, this is terrible times. And all of a sudden the Jews start to understand that he really is not the Messiah, and they begin to rebel, and they head for the hills. And they start to reconsider Jesus as the Messiah. And across the world, people, uh, the Jews began to preach Jesus to all the nations. And Revelation talks about the, the two witnesses that are going out there, you know, for lack of a better term, Billy Graham style, and witnessing to the world. Uh, and the Bible calls them Moses and Elijah, and he has 144,000 evangelists that go out and preach the gospel for people to come to God. At that time, it'll be very difficult to worship Jesus. And if you don't have the mark of the beast 
you, you very well could be martyred. And Jesus says if the days were not shortened, no one would survive. So at this point, the nations gather together for Armageddon to fight Israel. The Antichrist is not going to allow Israel to get away, from, or get away with rebelling from him, and the nations will fight, and Jesus returns to the earth at that point and saves Israel and brings us with him, and we defeat the enemy through Jesus. Sorry if I'm kind of giving away the ending of the movie for those that haven't seen it. You know what I'm saying? When he returns, he won't be meek. He won't be the mild teacher. He will be a warrior and a king, a very powerful um, God, and we will, be, uh, we will be with him, and he will defeat the armies of the world, and then the Jews will recognize and receive him as the Messiah. A thousand-year reign will, will start, and then, then at the end of that, Satan is freed, and you have the final rebellion where Satan is defeated. And Jesus presides over the, the, the final judgment of all things, and then we enter into eternity with Jesus. That's kind of the synopsis of what we kind of covered last week. And I hope you got it all because we're going to pass out the pop quizzes and we're going to fill it all out. But, you know, we, we talked about also last week how the end times is a very interesting subject to cover. And some of us love all the details, then some of us go, well, it just scares me half to death, so I'm just going to stay away from it completely. Uh, but we need to, to understand that we don't have to understand all the end times. We just have to believe and trust in Jesus, and that is what matters. And at the end of chapter 24, he says in verse 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for the servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all the possessions, all of his possessions. But suppose the servant uh, that is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time, and then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect him, and at the hour he is not aware of, he will cut him into pieces and assign him to a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, disciples would have noticed that the, the change in Jesus' teaching here in the final days. They would have noticed his, his tone and his demeanor kind of changing as he's getting closer and closer to he know. Uh, closer to that time of what he knows is about to happen. Because he wants everyone to understand that judgment will come and that there are real consequences to our stewardship. There's real consequences there. God's heart is very patient. And he's delaying coming because of us and because of those that he loves. But one day he will, he will come and he will be here. And God doesn't want anyone to be lost. He wants everyone to come with him. But he also knows that there's a time when enough is enough. I can tolerate a lot of things with my three and a half, almost four-year-old. But there comes a point where I go, enough is enough. Brandon, you need, get over here. Come here. You need to listen to me right now. And as a parent, God, in that parent role comes to a point where enough will be enough. So what do we do until he returns? Well, Peter says it in 2 Peter 3. He says, so, the, so then, dear friends, 
since you are looking forward to, to this, the return of Jesus, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So we're supposed to be living our life in a way that reflects who he is and what we believe in. That is our job, number one job. There's multiple things that, that God wants us to be doing, but that is our, our number one thing making every effort to be found spotless, knowing that we're not going to be perfect, but making that effort. Our work is cut out for us, people, right? We have work to do because we are all sinners. So every day we get up, we serve Him. We serve Him in the way we live. We serve Him and the things that He's put forth in front of us, and we're going to be talking about that in a little while. We grow in grace and knowledge while serving Him. We stay faithful and live holy lives, waiting for him to come back. So then we get to chapter 25, and it says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. And I hate to, you know, the poor terrorists, they thought it was going to be 40 virgins. But ten. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, who took the lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish one took their lamps but they did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom went, uh, was a long time in coming, and they all became, became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then the ten virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins were, were ready and went in and, uh, with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. What a very interesting story, especially for our Western culture. It has no clue what any of that means. You know what I'm saying? We look at that and go, you talk about ten, ten women and, and oil and midnight and a bridegroom coming, and I don't get this because this is not how our weddings are done. He's using a first century wedding celebration as an illustration, so they would have understood that. If you know anything about first century weddings, they're, they're kind of really cool. The, the groom falls in love with a beautiful woman. Or the parents set it up with a beautiful woman, because all women are beautiful. Right, men? Come on, come on, let's try that again. Right, men? Good answer. You know, don't you wish to... I, I'm, I'm kind of the mind... Uh, uh, there's already some... Uh, you know, I have some college friends that are, that are having kids uh, when I went back to school and, and I worked at the college. Uh, you know, they're about 10 years younger than me. And so they're all having kids right now and I'm sitting there going, oh, I know the parents, I know their personalities and all their kids are, are so cute and I already see some of the personalities and I'm like, that, that would be a good wife for, for Brandon. You know, I'm kind of like going, don't you kind of wish it was still that way? Now all the young people are going, absolutely not. But who, who knows you better than your parents, right? Who knows the personalities that would match up, right? Okay, so that's how the old world thought a lot of times. So you have a, a you know, bridegroom, that he falls in love with his bride. So 
during a, and they're engaged for a long time. It's usually about a year. And they're out and they're betrothed to each other and, and technically they're married, but they haven't you know, consummated that. You understand? So technically they're married. And during this time, the groom has gone away to the father's house, either across town or in another town, and he prepares a place for him and his bride to live. And usually that's at his dad's house. They would add on to the house. That's usually how it was done. And when he d- is done, he's coming back to get her. So when the place is almost done, the father of the bride decides the date of the wedding. They don't get together and go, okay, what Saturday works for all our friends? The father of the bride says, this is the date that it's set. So the groom plans everything and tells his friends to be ready, but not the exact date. So the bride and her friends would have this huge slumber party for a period of time because they know the groom is going to show up. They just don't know exactly when the groom is going to show up. So it's a lot of fun. for. I mean, think about it. In first century, all the girls would get together, big slumber party, and they would wait. And, and the groom would always, you know, a lot of times would come in the middle of the night because it's kind of fun. It's a, a festive thing. They just don't know when he's going to arrive. So at midnight, the groom would come, you know, on a horse. And if he had enough money, it would be a big white horse, uh, kind of a cool thing. And he would literally sweep her off the feet, and that's where we get the term, sweep her off the feet, put her on the horse, and they would ride off. The other members of the wedding party would, would do the same. So all his groomsmen would be on horses if they could afford it, and they would sweep the ladies off, and they would go to the uh, huge celebration that would occur, and it would be the wedding ceremony. Very exciting time, a lot of fun, very festive. So in the story that Jesus is using, he's saying the bride had ten friends. Five were wise and five were foolish. They didn't have enough money, you know, no money. They didn't have enough oil for the lamp. Now the oil here represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. They knew that he was coming, the bride was coming, I mean, the, the groom was coming, but they didn't get ready. They had, you know, they, then they tried to burn some, or uh, bum some Holy Spirit off their friends. You know what I'm saying? Well, you got enough spirit for both of us. Can I have some of your spirit? You know, it doesn't quite work like that. And they say no. So five of them are at Costco, banging on the door, trying to get inside to get the oil. You know what I'm saying? When they come back, they don't get into the party. And this is the point that Jesus is making. Make sure your life is filled with the Holy Spirit before he comes. Otherwise, it's too late. That's the whole point of the story. You can't read anything else into it. So he goes straight from that and their understanding. So, you know, they're catching on because they're first century, and he goes into another parable. He says again, it would be like a, like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted him his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money. To another, two talents, and to another, one talent, each according to his ability. Now, I don't want you to confuse the word talents and ability here. Because talents in the story is money. It's not your talents. You know, we use that word a little differently. It's, it's the weight of precious metal. A talent is 80 pounds worth of precious metal. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? Yeah, 80 pounds worth. Man, wouldn't we love to have 80 pounds worth of gold? 80 pounds worth of gold is one and a half million dollars today. So the master calls in a servant and gives him 
$1.5 million. Who would love to be that servant? You know what I'm saying? The other servant, he gives $3 million. And then the last servant, he gives $7.5 million. And he trusts them with it. And he leaves. So what happens? It says, then he went on a journey, and the man who received five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. Hey, that's pretty good, $15 million. That's a good return, right? So also, the one with two talents gained two more, but the man who received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Ouch. After a long time, the, the master of the servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you have entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you have entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your, with your, come share your master's happiness. Then the one who received one talent came. Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I had not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds. Well, then you should have put your money on deposit with the bankers at least, so that when I return, I received it back with interest. Take the talent from him. Give it to the one who has ten talents. For anyone who has will be given more, and he who has abundance and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him and, and throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, some parables are difficult to understand because you don't have context, like the, or context, like the, the wedding thing. Unless you understood first century wedding, you wouldn't quite get that whole idea. Uh, you would think that the guy was marrying ten women. He's not. You know, but this one is easy. We just ignore it. Jesus is saying God is expecting his servants to do something with what they have been given. Now, whatever talent, now again, now I'm talking about real talent, okay? Whatever ability that God has given you, when he returns, he expects a return on his investment. He expects it. He's not going to reward the person who's buried his talent. Now, I want you to understand something. The rich person is going to be judged very differently than the one that's not rich. Okay? God's not going to say, well, I mean, 
I expected you to have $50 million even though you didn't have any money to begin with or you only had $10 to begin with. He, he's not saying, uh, you, you see what I'm saying? The smart person is going to be judged differently than the person who had trouble in school. You see what I'm saying? God doesn't have the same expectation for every single person. He has different expectations for each one of us. The strong and healthy will be evaluated different than the weak and the sick. Every child is different. If you took my three brothers and compared us all, all four boys in my family, you, you couldn't judge us the same because we're different. You see what I'm saying? One of us was really smart, and I'm not going to say which one it was. But you don't understand what I'm saying. He's not going to judge us the same. You would see all different kinds, and the Lord knows that, and he's okay with that. Every one of us has different giftings. Some people are craftsmen. Some people are cooks. Some people are math people. Some people are artists. Some people are good at, uh, good at relationships. Some people are good at organization, administration. You have good teachers. You have good servants. You have good acting. Some are good with money. Whatever the gifting, God has given you a gifting. Just like with the five, just like with the two and the one. We fail a lot of times in our gifting because we look at someone else's gift and envy it. I want to do that. I wish I had that gift. I wish I had that talent. I wish I had that ability. I wish God would have done that with me. And we envy it. And therefore, we ignore our own gift. We think, man, if I just had that gifting, then I'd really do something for God. I tell you, I wish I could play the guitar. I bought, well, one of them got stolen, so I bought a second one. I, I bought two guitars myself. And I tried to learn how to play guitar. I just don't have the gift. I don't have the timing. And you definitely don't want me up here with one of the mics singing, okay? I'm just, I'll just say that. That's not where my gifting lies. But if, my, if I sat there and just envied that, wanted that, and ignored my teaching gift, where would that leave me? Not doing what God wanted me to do. Disappointing Him. We're failing to focus on what we do have. And focusing on the things that we don't have. Jesus tells the guy who buried his talent, you're not just disappointed with him. He goes, you wicked, lazy, evil servant. Those are harsh words for someone who didn't use his talent. You know, I don't walk around here grabbing someone and saying to them, Hey, you're not, losing, you're not using your talent, you wicked, evil person. That's just not the way to motivate someone, right? But Jesus says, I gave you an ability, and you have buried that ability. How do you account for that? Um, I was afraid. What was the guy afraid of? Failure? Maybe success? But he was also afraid of God. He thinks that God's expectation of him is so high, he doesn't even try. 
Well, there's no way I could live a perfect life. I mean, God was here. He lived a perfect life. There's no way I could do that. So therefore, I don't even try. There's no way. So how do I live my life? The opposite. God's expectations are so high for me. You know the great thing about trying and failing something? You figure out you don't die from failing. You know what I'm saying? When you try something out, you figure out that it didn't kill you. Failing is, is one of the best things for us because we learn from it. But some of us don't even try because we don't want to look foolish. Well, if somebody comes to my Bible study and they know more, know more Bible than me, that would make me look foolish, and heaven forbid I ever look foolish. Well, you know what? If you're looking foolish, you're in good company, because even Paul said, I'm a fool for Christ. See, the master's response was this, you are wicked and you are evil because you didn't take risk. I don't think this is preached enough in the church. I don't think we, we really get down and go, look, you need to be using the talents that God has given you or you're burying them, you're wasting them. I don't think that is preached enough. If you're going to be true followers of God, then we have to get out there and we have to take risk. We have to try different things. But my point is you need to take risk in the areas of your gifting and the abilities that God has given you. See what I'm saying? I'm not going to go out there and be a linebacker because I don't have that ability. You, you see what I'm saying? That's not the risk I should be taking. You know, I learned something a long time ago. I learned that I didn't take risk in the, in the areas that I didn't have gifting in. You know, I used to be the, the kind of person who thought everybody should be well-rounded in ministry. And, and one, of my, uh, one of my pastors that kind of brought me up did a good thing. I mean, he, literally, he sent me to a women's ministry conference once. Just so I'd understand the perspective of the women and what they did. And so he was trying to well-round me. He made me, made me, spend two months in children's ministry. That is not my gifting. Love kids, love my son, children's ministry is not it. Junior high ministry, I'm all for it, okay? As I have often said, I think the older we get, the more we act like junior hires, you know? Uh, junior high ministry, I understand that. But one thing I also did is I didn't take risk in the areas of ministry I was good at because I would wing it. Well, I'm, I'm a decent teacher, so I would just wing it. But I started to learn that I needed to prepare more. I needed to do my due diligence before I came to teach. You see, the body of Christ is a unit. The body of Christ is, uh, we need different types. We need to be well-rounded with different people. We have all kinds of shapes. We have all kinds of abilities. We can't be the whole puzzle ourselves. We can't go around and go, well, I really, really, really want to be the corner edge of a puzzle. Well, I'm sorry. There's only four corners to the rectangle puzzle, and that means only four people can be those four corners. You see what I'm saying? You're, you're like on the edge piece, or you're in the middle piece, and I can't put you over there because it doesn't fit. 
That's the way it's supposed to be. All the disciples and all the people that Jesus has brought along, he's given them different amounts of talents. And what we're supposed to do with those abilities is to not bury it. Don't be caught burying your ability. Figure out what you're good at in ministry and do that. What are you good at in life and do that? I've learned I am not the street corner evangelist. Let me go, you know, hold the sign, beat somebody over the head with the Bible. That is not who I am. I am not an evangelist. I'm a teacher. That's what I'm good at. But I also can take that teaching and go do other things with it. What is your talent? What is your ability? Because if you don't use your talent, it's not used in the, in the body, and therefore the body is deficient. It can't be enjoyed by the body. We don't have to be good at everything. Oh, don't we wish we were good at everything? We don't have to be good at everything. You need to be good at the things that God has given you as an ability. And I want you to work at those few things until I return, Jesus says. I want to see the returns that you produce when I get back. Don't work on your weaknesses. Work on your strength. The Bible says in our weaknesses, he is made strong. Let him deal with those weaknesses. It doesn't say eventually our weaknesses are made strong. So what happens is when I focus on my gifting, the Lord takes care of the rest of it. And the people start to come around and compensate for our other weakness areas. God brings somebody in and says, well, I know you're weak in that area. That's why I'm bringing so-and-so and putting them right next to you in ministry. They can take care of that. You shouldn't be doing that. If I ask you today, what has the Lord called you to do? If you gave me a list of 10 to 20 things, I would tell you, you have no clue. You have no clue. Give me a list of the two, three, maybe four, but no more than five things that the Lord has called you to focus on because the Lord has not made us into multitaskers. As much as the work world wants us to believe that we all should be multitaskers, that we all should, should be able to do five things at once or ten things at once, that is not how we are made. The Lord has called us to do a few things and to do those things well. Because the devil knows that if he can keep us multitasking, if he can keep us focusing on all these different things, then he, then he doesn't have to do much work to, to prevent us from doing the things that we should be doing for God. We prevent ourselves because we're doing 50 million things. If he can keep us in a state of freaking out, we'll never, never be focused on what he's called us to do. See, the people I admire the most are the ones who are focused. You all know, I'm assuming you all know who Peyton Manning is, right? Quarterback. I mean, one of the most phenomenal quarterbacks that there's ever been. Even if you don't follow football, you should know who he is. What if today he decided to be a linebacker? Or a defensive lineman? How would that work out for Peyton? Very bad. Very bad. See, Peyton Manning is focused on what Peyton Manning's good at. You see what I'm saying? 
How about we focus on what we're good at in the ministry and serving God and not be a defensive back, not be the lineman unless we're made to be a lineman. You, just, you, see, you follow in the, uh, what I'm trying to say here? We, we even may have to give up something that we think we're good at because the Lord hasn't called us to do it. If you came with someone today, they could probably tell you something that you're good at. Sometimes we need someone to say to us, you need to try this. Because they understand who we are sometimes. But let's be faithful over a few things. Instead of running around like chickens with their head off, you know, cut off, trying to do too many things. And let's see what God will do with those. So you have to ask yourself today, what is the talent? What is the ability? Well, how much money, <laughs> don't you wish it was 80 pounds of gold, how much has God, what ability has God given you and what are you going to do with that ability within this church and outside of this church? Maybe even around the world. What is God going to do with your ability? But first you've got to figure out what that ability is. Ask God. Talk to somebody. Come talk to me. We will figure it out together. But don't grab a shovel, dig a hole, and bury it. Because you will be held accountable. You don't want God saying, you wicked, evil person. You want God to be saying, well done, good and faithful servant. I know you messed up a lot. I know you tried and you didn't always accomplish it. But you did your job by following what I wanted you to do. And that is the key. Are we going to do that job or not? You have to figure that one out. Let's pray. Let's stand and pray as the worship team comes up. Lord, we come before you as your humble servants. We pray that you enlighten us, that you open our eyes and open our hearts to the talents and abilities that you have given us, specifically, each one of us, that we could turn around and use that within ministry to change your kingdom. That if we're a guy that can hold, you know, handle three, five, seven and a half million dollars, that we handle it. Whatever talent you've given us, that we handle it. That we not be the guy who buries it. And that you're so disappointed in. We want to be those that you say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we pray that you will awaken the Holy Spirit within us to show us where we should serve you. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may that light shine on the ability that's within you so you recognize it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.